0: Today's episode is brought to you by Nightfire, publisher of The Living Dead by George A. Romero and New York Times bestselling author Daniel Krause. Uh, that is now available in paperback.
1: Yeah, some eagle-eared listeners might remember that uh, Daniel Krause came on the show uh, a while back and talked about his uh, working relationship with George Romero. And uh, it's over up on our uh, Patreon if you haven't heard it.
0: Yeah, Daniel's a good guy. I'm happy to be promoting his book on the show today. and. For those who aren't familiar, uh, George A. Romero invented the modern zombie with Night of the Living Dead, but often felt hemmed in by the constraints of filmmaking. Set in the present day, The Living Dead is an entirely new tale, the story of the zombie plague as George A. Romero wanted to tell it. Joe Hill calls The Living Dead a horror landmark, while The Washington Post calls it the definitive account of the zombie apocalypse. Read The Living Dead by George A. Romero and our friend Daniel Krause. Available now in paperback wherever terrifying books are sold. I, I, I You can probably also buy it where non-terrifying books are sold. But. <laughs> yeah, I'd
1: hope so. That seems to be limiting their audience if they only sold it where terrifying books are sold. Because in my mind, that's like the Necronomicon and shit that'll like summon mm-hmm. demons. It's
0: kind of an objective We, we want some thing. Clifford
1: the Big Red Dog in there too somewhere. You know, think of the yeah. kids. You know what else you can find at some bookstore, Scott? Garfield? Nope, that's not what I was thinking of. I was thinking of our old standby Fangoria magazine. Ah, uh, Yes. Before we dive into today's episode, it is once again time to remind you that Fangoria Magazine was a pioneer in the form of genre reporting and today is better than ever before. Yes, you can find the latest issues at some bookstores these days, but fair warning, these sunny issues tend to sell out. So you can make sure you never miss an issue by ordering yourself an annual subscription. To do so, head over to Fangoria.com and make sure to enter in the promo code KINGCAST at checkout for 25% off your entire order.
0: Now, with all of that said, on with the show.
2: Hi. My name is Stephen King.
0: The ice is gonna break! Bad ram Bad guys gonna go
1: see a dead body
2: sometimes that is better.
0: Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Scott Wampler and I am Eric Vespi and we are your hosts. Those of you who have been listening to us since the beginning know that we have tackled misery in the past. Uh but the first time we did it was with Elijah Wood. And Elijah, as he revealed on the show, had never read a Stephen King book, including Misery, before. (laughs) Um, This is early enough into the show's run where people were sort of confused why we would have Elijah on for a book he hadn't read, but a movie he'd seen. The episode was sort of the answer to that. He was able to look at this property through the prism of his own interactions with weird fandoms and, and what have you and, you know. Uh, It's a pretty excellent episode. But today we're talking misery again, and we brought in a guy who has read it. Imagine that. (laughs) Um, If you've read any horror other than Stephen King over the past decade, uh, there's a good chance you picked up one of this award-winning author's wildly popular novels. Maybe it was A Head Full of Ghosts. Maybe it was Disappearance at Devil's Rock or The cabin at the End of the World or last year's Survivor Song. Uh, the point being, if you're a true blue horror reader, you know the name Paul Tremblay, who we are beyond excited to be talking to on the show today. Say hello to the people, Paul.
2: Hey, uh, hi, hi, people. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me on, uh, Eric and Scott. That's very nice. And My takeaway, though, is that Elijah Wood doesn't read books. In fact, I've already, while you were talking, set up the T-shirt account uh you know, <laughs> <just for that. laughs> instead of Frodo that.
1: lives it's like Frodo doesn't read or something Frodo doesn't <laughs> read. exactly yeah.
2: yeah that's 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 the t-shirt right there <laughs> yeah.
0: had you read the map to Mordor dickhead right that's big <laughs> yeah. plot
2: holes it's like sort of reframing yeah. all those movies for me now
0: recently we had Elijah on for our one year anniversary show which involved like 20 plus people and um his assignment for that show was to read Grandma, which he did. So we can now officially confirm another yet another KingCast exclusive wherein we uh, made Elijah Wood read Stephen King finally. And nice. he loved it. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
2: So good. Okay, a win for literacy. <laughs> yes, indeed. But, but but
1: like just real quick, though, I think the what that episode kind of showed was that really the show's. Even though it's about the the written materials, we're all obsessed with it. You know, it really is, on a larger sense, all, all about the influence of Stephen King throughout all mediums and the fact that he could have had such a huge influence on, uh, you know, on Elijah and just through adaptations of of his work, you know, and in, in the movies. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an early indicator of where we kind of knew that the show didn't have to be super on rails, where we didn't have to be very stringent on totally on the rules. You you have to know the book, and you have to know the movie, and you, because then it becomes homework for a lot of people, and uh, and we don't want to assign homework, right? <laughs> Unless Never it's Joe McHale, and and we uh, make him watch the director's <laughs> cut of the Lawnmower Man.
2: <laughs> oh, nice.
0: So I bet you've been asked this question ad nauseum, but I've I've got to ask it myself. Your your most recent novel was Survivor Song, which yeah. deals with a viral outbreak, and it was completed in toward the end of 2019. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. Yeah, I turned in my excuse me final edits uh, no, like November first, 2019.
0: <laughs> so, how did you feel about that? Come <laughs> come March. Wait a minute. Did oh. you do
2: COVID? Did you do COVID? <laughs> was it you? Uh, it's a super avis, Yeah. But sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, it was a totally bizarre experience. You know, not that like everybody's experience in the past year plus, sure. you know, has been, you know, super bizarre. Um, you know, for me, the thing I really struggled with, you know, beyond just, you know, fearing of dying in a pandemic, which has always been like one of my top fears you know, of my life was, you know, a lot of the research I did for the book and I hate doing research. I'll admit that publicly. <laughs> so I had my sister help me, uh, you know, my sister's a nurse at one of the biggest hospitals in Boston. And so like in the early going, you know, the, the stuff that seems quote unquote prescient was all due to her experience as a nurse and how like in 2014, they almost had to deal with, you know, an outbreak of, of, um yeah, Ebola and it was terrifying and you know, like that's the first time I ever heard the word, you know, the acronym PPE and stuff like that. So I know. And so when the book was, was starting to, you know, the review copies and the promotion was starting to somewhat roll out, like when COVID hit, you know, it was just hard for me not to like my worries about my sister and everybody, (laughs) you know, are all sort of rolled up in the weird part about the book. Like I'll never forget the first interview I did uh, for the book was for Rolling Stone online. And the interviewer, uh, you know, it was super nice, Yeah, you know, had just read the book that weekend. So she sounded like really bummed out, <laughs> you know, and I felt like I was like apologizing the whole time. <laughs> you know, my editor, like, you know, instantly wrote me an email. I was like, Hey, you don't have to apologize for the book you wrote. But like, that was the only way I could sort of like deal with like these unnameable feelings, you know, that we were all going through. Totally. Um, but yeah. I-,
1: I can, weirdly though, I can tell you just from experience, like one of the things that I did to kind of cope with it in the early days of lockdown was I watched Contagion, and it yep. weirdly made me feel better. <laughs> me I, too. I don't. I yeah. couldn't tell you why. Like it, it goes against every instinct right. of, of the, that shouldn't work. You shouldn't. Like it's like, oh, you're gonna dwell in another thing. But I don't know. Just I guess it's the magic of movies or magic of storytelling. I felt sure. the same thing when I went through. I reread The Stand over you know over last summer, and, and there's just something about entertainment letting you have a release whether it's you know in storytelling in general having a release for real world stuff that i couldn't get just by sitting around being nervous and playing video games and not you know talking to anybody you know so i don't know yeah. so i have a feeling like your, your book was
2: that for your readers yeah i think it was for some like i mean because i'm definitely you know for the first bunch of months i avoided <laughs> uh you know stuff that was close to a pandemic because i'm not that person I mean, partly because it was so close right. to my personal fears. For sure. Um, although I will say, eventually, like last summer, once I had a better mental grip on myself and what was going on, I did actually read uh, Camus' "The Plague" for the first time. And that, that was wild because there were paragraphs that, like, he was describing what was happening, you know, in the 1930s in his, you know, fictional world was happening now, like in terms of people not taken seriously and. Stuff like that. And it was pretty, you know, in a weird way, almost like reassuring, like, ah, humans got to be human, (laughs) which means dumbasses, right? Um, It's funny (laughs) for me, like those first two weeks of lockdown, it coincided with my spring break from school. You know, I was a mess. I was supposed to be reading stuff and I I couldn't do it. Like I was watching like Mythbusters reruns. And (laughs) it's funny, you're talking about going back to horror. What actually helped me break out of it and, and get me back to myself was rereading Peter Straub's The Throat. You know, which Mm. is not certainly, you know, very dark not a reassuring story, but I would just still luxuriate in Peter's like sentences and the story that I knew. And I know it was a reminder, like for me, it's not so much the escape, but it was a reminder that, you know, if I'm going to be myself, like I, this is what I do. Like I I read to be me. I don't necessarily like read to escape, if that makes sense. You know, the same thing with movies and stuff like that too.
0: Totally. Another thing I read about you that I I would like to ask about is that you worked summers in a Parker brothers factory. Yeah. Is that true?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My dad worked at Parker brothers for like 25 years. So you
0: worked like a factory making board games.
2: Yep. Uh, Yeah. It was an old factory. It was like built in like 1921 or something, maybe even, you know, so I worked there was mid to late eighties crossing over into the early nineties a little bit. So yeah, like one of my first jobs was like unloading, like the tractor trailers full of (laughs) you know, full of cardboard boxes of like the materials. And then eventually when I was older, I was actually on the assembly lines, like you know, building I used, I used the games be, and sure. putting yeah, all the yeah. houses
1: in, in monopoly, monopoly and yeah. stuff. Uh,
2: yeah. Yeah. The hardest part, the hardest part on the assembly lines, putting the cover on as they go by that, that takes, that's, that takes skill. Mm. That's hard. Um, I was usually a material handler. They called it, which was, you know, I would make sure the cardboard machine had enough cardboard in it and that the bin of the hotels had, you know, hotels in it and stuff like that. Right. Um, I I asked because this is just
0: just fascinating to me. (laughs) Uh, The idea of working in a board game, like a Parker Brothers specifically board game factory, like where it's not like you're not dealing with RPGs (laughs) where it's like some elaborate thing, but it's still got to (laughs) be tedious putting all the shit in there. But also you're looking at Candyland covers all day.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that wasn't us. No, I'm like still fiercely Parker Brothers uh uh-huh. you know, like, you know, monopoly and stuff but no like <clears throat> okay. it was actually a fun place to work and you know it seemed like just to my teenager eyes that you know everybody knew each other like everyone knew my dad because he'd been there forever uh two quick anecdotes i used to be terrified of ouija boards until i saw it mass-produced <laughs> you yeah know, I've, been on, I've been on ouija board assembly lines I'm like oh like as soon as i saw that i was like oh you know my dad would still try to scare me he'd be like oh no one time this like old, disheveled woman came back, you know, to the mail room because that's where he was at the time. She had this beat-up Ouija board. She said, you know, I, I try to throw it away, and it keeps coming back. It must be destroyed at the place where it was created. <laughs> you know, I'm sure, I'm sure he was lying, but maybe not, because some weird stuff definitely happened at that place.
0: Huh. Yeah, that's a fucking story. I 5,000 of those off a truck today.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned like the RPG stuff. They actually pulled me out of the factory for two weeks, you know, partly because my dad worked there. Like, hey, do you want to test this Nintendo game that we're trying to create for two yeah. weeks. I'm like, sure. What the fuck? <laughs> I like playing Nintendo. And uh, the game was called Drax Night Out. Uh, and the first part was like, you were Dracula trying to escape your own castle, which would make much sense because it's your castle. And it coincided, they were trying to do like a crossover promotion with Reebok sneakers. So they were like floating, <laughs> what the floating uh, pump Reebok sneakers in his castle. So if Dracula... <laughs> <laughs> jumped up and grabbed them, you'd hear, st, st. and then he could like run fast for like, you know, 30 seconds or something like that. And then after <laughs> you made it God. out of the castle, you had to, uh, it was like Zelda, but very Zelda light. You had to mm. find the Maid Marian and Sucker Blood. Um, it, it never got produced, but you know, if you Wikipedia it, Google it, you can find, you can play it now, like on your on your computer. So it's a, re- it's a real wow. thing that never actually came out. But you know, this was so early, like they would record like what I was playing on a VCR. And if a glitch happened, I would have to like write down the counter number and the programmer would come and rewind the tape and watch what happened. (laughs) And it got so boring after like two days, like, you know, I'd fall asleep literally playing. So I remember him like rewinding my, my avatar was just standing still. I was like, Oh, I was just testing him standing still for a while.
0: (laughs) I love the idea that first of all, they called it Drax night out. Yeah. Like, like casual, like it's your buddy, you know, Drac, Drac's going to be there. Yeah. Exactly. It's his like night out. You know, you want to go? And then, and then <laughs> combining that with Reebok pump sneakers. Yeah. That was strange. One. <laughs> it's something Because if you looked at like what that. their,
2: what their Nintendo cover would have been, like Dracula looks like Mr. Moneybags from Monopoly, but made up like Dracula sort of, <laughs> you know, the, sort of that, like that Parker Brothers-y kind of look. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And then like, he's got, you know, you know bitchin' Reebok pump sneakers on. Yeah. <laughs> And, and yet
1: that wasn't uh, <laughs> enough to really hold your attention for more than a couple of days. And you were like no, begging to get back to yeah. filling up the, uh, the hotels and houses bin for
0: monopoly. Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: Cause it was only like three boards. Like I won the game, like in the first like day. So the rest of the time yeah. was just running around trying to do stuff,
0: <laughs> trying to break the game,
2: trying to break the game. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> I guess maybe they just had so much success with the uh, avoid the Noid game. That came out like in the early <laughs> yeah, I remember early nineties, late eighties. It was like, you yeah. know, we need more branding in here. Dracula's not enough. So, um, I suppose that now would be a really good time to talk about your your Stephen King origin story. Sure. You understand the question, right? Oh like, yeah, yeah. Can, <laughs> okay. Yeah, you
2: know, so the the funny part is I can't so for me it was films, like all films, because I was not a reader as a kid. Like, I don't know. I mean, I was a good little school nerd like i would read what was assigned to me but like i wasn't really a reader for fun until like my early 20s so all my first stephen king uh, exposure was film you know it's hard to pick what was the first one that i saw it might have even been the shining but maybe pet cemetery that definitely scared the crap out of me uh zelda in particular but so when i graduated high school six days after i graduated so like a quick story or two uh right after i graduated I'd had like bad scoliosis at the time. Like my upper spine was curved like 45 degrees. So I had uh, a spinal fusion surgery where they took bone from my hip and metal rods. You know, it straightened me out, but it was more to keep it from getting worse as I was still growing, but it did straighten me out like three inches. I was six foot when I went under and woke up six foot three. Um, So that whole summer I was like, you know, I'm going to be home by myself. You know, it's going to be miserable. I'm in a lot of pain. You know, my parents had bookshelves and, I never read them, but like I love looking at like the old paperbacks they had and they had a bunch of King ones including it that big thick it paperback with the two capital red letters you know the great cover where you see like the lizardy kind of hand coming up out of the yeah. So I'm like all right I got all this time this summer you know I guess I'll I'll read a book you know self improvement before I go off to college You know, and I read the first chapter of it, and I literally threw the book across the room because, like, there's no fucking way I'm going to be in the house all summer scared out of my (laughs) mind. (laughs) So the first time I tried to read it, I I gave up because it was too scary. That's wild. Yeah, fast forward, like, four years. um, I was – long, boring story, but I ended up a a math and humanities major. Usually by a bunch of like silly mistakes by myself, but like I took <laughs> I took an English 101 class, it was like my last requirement, like literally second semester, senior year, my last class. Um, and that class, like, really opened my eyes. It turned me into a reader. It was like, whoa, I didn't know, you know, people wrote such cool stuff. And there was a Joyce Carroll Oates story that I read uh, that blew my mind called Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? And shortly after that, my girlfriend, who's my wife now, um, bought me for my 22nd birthday, almost like four years to the day after the. Me trying to read it, she bought me the stand for my birthday, mm. uh, and I inhaled it and just loved it. And I went off to grad school for two years, and we did the long distance relationship thing. So again, I had a lot of time <laughs> to myself. So those two years where I really struggled by the skin of my teeth to get my math degree, um, you know, I read all the Stephen King that I could find, and you know, and used his dance macabre to go out, you know, and, right. and find like Peter Straub and Shirley Jackson, and et etc. So yeah, yeah that's but, Sorry if that was too long, but that's the no, nice no, my no, 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 story no. anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, Dance Macabre is like kind of an underspoken about thing uh, that King has done because when you talk about his nonfiction on writing, is always you know mm. kind of takes the spotlight, um, at least what I've noticed. But like Dance Macabre was huge for me when I was younger because I, you know, I'm like you. I was the movie geek. I was more of a movie right. geek than I was a book nerd, um, and uh, like so, almost all the fiction I read for fun was all like offshoots of, of movie stuff. Like I read the client the year the client was, co- cause that was, co- I saw the trailer it was coming out in the, the theater, yeah. you know, like I read a ton of Crichton after Jurassic park and, you know, and then I was able to read sphere, you know, before it, it, it was adapted and, you know, Congo and all these things that I loved as, yeah. <laughs> as books. And, you know, I got to have that, that uh, heartbreak of, of seeing something <laughs> that I like really loved watching or reading uh, and then, uh, you know, turned yeah. into what they turned into um (laughs) but dance macabre was very attractive to me because i was like i was seeking out movies like proactively scouring video stores all that stuff so i kind of use that like as a uh, a little bit of a checklist because you know i was already a big stephen king uh, nerd at this point and so i remember like if this guy says this horror movie is good i'm going to go watch it you know that that was kind of the Kind of the thing. Yeah, we we should. I, I actually really want to dip back into it, Scott. We need to find somebody. We actually had a, a conversation once about somebody we'd love to do Dance Macabre with.
0: But uh, that's kind of a big get. And it'd be a big filmmaker. <laughs> I don't know if I told you this at the time, Eric, but I'll reveal it right now on the show. And people will yell at me for it. But it is yet another KingCast exclusive. I've never actually read Dance Macabre.
2: Scott, mm, y- I know. Y- yeah. <laughs> How dare you? I'm, yeah.
0: I revealed this to uh, our friend Phil Nabil Jr. at Fangoria the other day, and he was just like, "What the fuck?" I'm like, "I know, I know. Believe me, I know. I really do." Um, but I never got around to that one because when I was a kid, my mom, you know, uh, my mom had all the Stephen King books, as I've mentioned before, and would sort of guide me towards different ones and away from others for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, and with dance macabre, she was just like, it's, it's a nonfiction thing. It's, and that's when my brain just turned off and I stopped listening, (laughs) but you know, the, the other things I heard about it was just like, you know, it's Stephen King talking about horror and writers and stuff. And at that, that age, it just did not interest me. And then over the years, it's like, I I've since found out what dance macabre actually is. And, and like, I do want to read it as a completist, but that's one of those ones I've been saving like I there's there's certain titles that I'm just kind of stockpiling. So when the day comes where the where there are no Stephen King books left,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, I'll have like sort of a little a little bank to work with. And, and I've, I've, I've sort of stuck that one in that slot for now.
2: Nice. No, I think that's a good reason to save it. And I think it, it would be a wonderful read now. I mean,
0: Oh, I bet. It's,
2: uh, you know, just like basically almost like the history of 20th century horror up and in, up into like right. the mid eighties. Right. Um, no, and I'm, I mean, I'm clamoring. I would love to have him, you know, write like sort of a follow up, like take care of what's happened since, you know, the mid eighties up through now, you know, like, yeah. you know,
0: we need, that you would know, be, amazing. I feel like we need
2: it. <laughs> um, I would certainly read the hell out of it. Uh, I mean, because it'd be so interesting. I mean, particularly on the publishing side of things, because in the 80s, you know, there was the horror boom. You know, I, I think on some level there was a boom bust in Hollywood, too, but not as pronounced as it was in publishing, where right. they were throwing around, like, million-dollar book deals for, right. for horror writers left and right. And then, you know, a totally huge crash, you know, into the 90s. And then sort of, you know, the I don't want to say the rebirth, but sort of the reemergence of horror. Even now, like, the, the ripples of that crash are still in publishing. Like, you know, even though you know, horror is sort of having a moment. And I, I sort of, I both like and hate that phrase. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, having a moment sort of implies it's going to go away. But that that's also fine too. Like I, I still want horror to be like sort of the punk thing, the at the edges thing. I don't want it to be too mainstream. Because yeah. I think this where horror is at its best.
0: But yeah, well, so I
2: think it would be really cool to have like a dance, a dance macabre <laughs>
0: um,
2: Dance hard. Dance macabre. Oh, yeah, dance macabs, <laughs> Electric boogaloo right
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: now paul do you have a relationship with king yourself because i know that he's uh you know he's like giving you quotes and stuff for some of your books like have you ever like, yeah um but i'm, you know, I'm not sure we, like what sure. your relationship is. Oh, no, no we yeah. haven't
2: we haven't met in person but we, we exchange emails fairly frequently you know he's a super generous guy um super nice and you know i don't know just like seems like so down to earth in emails yeah yeah no it is we i still i mean I sort of pinch myself at times. I'm like, I'm emailing Stephen King. This is so weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to have jokes like ah, I was really tempted to email him to ask him for some misery quotes. But maybe if I come <laughs> back on it and we do the obscure thing that <laughs> Eric and I, uh, I mean, Scott and I mentioned, you know, maybe I would ask mm. him for some quotes.
0: <laughs> that I would definitely be interested in. And <laughs> I, I, I don't want to reveal what that idea. I, sure, I told yeah. Eric about the idea. But I don't want to reveal the idea on the show yet because yeah, it, it's I, do really ambi- cool. I do
2: ambiguous horror a lot, so we'll keep that part ambiguous. Yes, <laughs>
1: <laughs> we had Scott Ian on the show, and and he, oh, nice. he kind of did that without like telling King that he was doing it for a podcast, but he he wanted to talk about Wizard and Glasses, hmm. uh, uh, and so he came on and like he said that. He brought in like he was super proud and happy of it. He's like, yeah. So I was rereading it for the podcast, and I had some questions. So I emailed Steve Steve about it, and and this is what Steve said about it, and I'm going to share it with you guys right now. <laughs> so that, that's as close as we've gotten. So you uh, yeah. you can top Scotty in.
0: <laughs> now of the, uh, of the titles we discussed, we we landed on Misery. Tell us a little bit about your your history with Misery. I understand that as a kid you started with the films and then went to the right. books, but like. What order did you do him in and, you know, what do you think of of all of it?
2: Yeah. So, like, what I say I sort of became like a king reader for life was, that was like 93 to 95. So, Misery definitely falls in the, in the mm-hmm. you know, the king that I experienced first as a movie before a book. It was funny. Misery was one of the ones that I, I didn't read for the longest time. Like, you know, I've read, I don't know, what's he up to, like, I don't know how many he's up to, but I've certainly read, you know, 40 plus. He's probably over 50 at this point. And well, for I some reason,
1: the sixties. Yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah.
2: probably higher than, but yeah, misery was like one of the few that I, I hadn't read until this past year. Uh, during the pandemic, I've been taking a lot of dog walks. I'm fortunate to live in an area that's not too congested with people. So like <laughs> you yeah. yeah, taking my dog for a walk and listening to a lot of audiobooks. and I found myself, I was either listening to nonfiction or I was listening to a King book that I've already read just to hear it, mm-hmm. you know, to sort of reread it that way. But that's how I, I listened to misery and, uh, I think partly is because, you know, the movie at the time was just like, oh, man, you know, we really, you know, it was such a good movie, you know, shocking, you know, certainly for its time. It felt to me shocking in its time, you know, as a teenager, remembering, obviously, the scene where he's hobbled, where, you know, you know it's such a gore light movie, like to have that one mm-hmm. like moment of gruesomeness that they so that the filmmakers that Reiner, you know, so really sort of lead you up to that point, you know, even through earlier in the movie where, where they show shots of his mangled legs. It's, you know, it's always like they how hard they focus on. It. It's like, oh, you know, something worse is going to happen. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, something happened there. So, yeah, when, when I read the book, you know, through audio last year, it was, you know, such a different experience compared to the movie. Like, you know, I think it's one of those works that it's, you know, the movie, the book is really good. The movie's really good. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of crossover. They're definitely sort of, I would say, siblings in terms of what they represent. But, you know, mm. they do some really different things, markedly different things, I think, at times.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think the bu- the book's darker than the movie. Mm. the movie's plenty dark, but the violence uh against Paul specifically is is much more pronounced in the novel
2: oh absolutely yeah yeah I mean so I mean, I mean, cutting his the, thumb the, the, off yeah, and all that shit. Factor, for sure yeah yeah you know what, in some ways for me, like especially when you were watching the movie last night, like even when I watched the first time, what do you remember from the first time seeing it? you remember you remember Annie Wilkes, you remember Kathy Bates? Like yeah, she hmm. The, the movie is really about her. It's not about Paul. I mean, it is right. and it isn't. You know, you get more, I think you get more of her character than you do of his. You know, he's sort of almost like, I don't want to say a cipher. I mean, because, you know, James Conn does a great job. But, you know, he's almost the audience. Like, wow, look, you know, look at this human evil that we have to deal with or or the psychological horror of like, you know, this is what, you know, we all have. to. He's almost like an everyman, I feel like, in that movie. Right. right. Well, by course. design,
1: he 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 yeah. has to be passive. Right. He's right. passive throughout the entire thing. That's, you know, that's kind of the the whole point of his character and the whole point of the dynamic, the right. situation he's stuck in. He has to be, um, no, which exactly. is why it's so it's so thrilling whenever he, you know, is is plotting, you know, his escape, because then that he gets to not be passive anymore.
2: Um, you know, in the book, like my big takeaway from the book is there's so much more about like his struggle with what it means to be a writer. And like he's obviously mm-hmm. you get a lot more because obviously you get to go into the interior of Paul's head. But, you know, it's a lot more about like dealing with the expectations, you know, of being a writer and how he isn't really enjoying writing the misery books. I mean, that's there in the movie, but like there's so much more of it in the book, you know, which could be like a whole other discussion, like how often King goes to to writers as characters. (laughs) You know, and sort of the magic of how like some of that really works for, you know, for most of his readers aren't writers. But, you know, I think there's a way that you uh, the way that he does it. It can be a stand-in for sort of any career, like whatever career you're in. Like, you know, you have what you sort of expected it to be, and then you have what its reality is. Um, I think
0: he uses that often enough that it's, you know, we can fairly call it a trope.
2: Oh, it's absolutely become a trope, yeah.
0: But um, I'm never really annoyed by it. You know, I've seen people that are annoyed by it, making little jokes like, yeah. oh, it's always a writer and blah, blah, blah. Well, write what you fucking know, dude. Also, <laughs> yeah. like, read the book. It's probably a great book. <laughs> like, yeah. Who cares what his profession is? You want him to be a cab driver or something?
2: No, I mean, it's totally on point that, you know, it, it is a trope. I mean, it's a trope because it's been done a lot, but it doesn't mean you can't do it well. Like, I mean, the same with zombies, the same with any other horror trope you want to throw out there. Like, mm. yeah, I might first inwardly groan at the idea of another zombie thing like I sort of did when I wrote mine but like you know that that doesn't like it doesn't mean that you should stay away from it It just means you have to know you know it's been done a lot so you have to bring something else you know sort of to that table
0: I'll tell you another thing he does a lot that I I find funny his characters drink Pepsi specifically (laughs) Pepsi you know once you start noticing this you'll pick up on it real fast I don't think he's done it as often in the last I don't know 15 years but i feel like that's in misery i feel like that's in uh i'm putting myself on the spot here i don't <laughs> remember but i i've noticed it enough that when i was a kid and i was trying to write my own kind of stephen king stories you know i always had characters drinking pepsi because that's what stephen <laughs> king did you know
2: well that's funny. I I well and that one I'm not gonna speak to Steven anymore because I'm a Coke guy. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> um, same. Well, funny. No. I wrote down in my notes, uh, because I took notes like a good person. Watch rewatching the movie last night. You know, now that you mention it, I do think Buster drinks Pepsi at, at one point. Pepsi? <laughs> um, the sheriff. But there's a scene yeah. where there's a scene where Annie Wilkes is sitting watching Love Connection. Yes. I, I sort of laughed yes. at it at first because like, wow, this like if any production company from today wanted to get like a late eighties, early nineties, this is it. Cause she's got like mm-hmm. a giant two liter bottle of Coke classic sitting there. It actually says Coke classic. Um, wow. So now I'm like, Oh man, was that like a little in joke that, you know, she's sort of the, you know, the quote unquote evil character. So she's drinking <laughs> Coke classic. <laughs> well, Damn. that, that
1: actually tracks because uh, King has talked about how Annie Wilkes is cocaine, that she is oh, a character is an allegory yeah. for cocaine. So the fact that she's yeah. drinking Coca Cola, I don't know if that's in the book. I, I couldn't tell you if if yeah. uh, it, he ever mentions it in the book, but uh, it might just be a coincidence. But I really love uh, love that kind of pairing there because King sure. was saying that because Annie is is his number one fan, cocaine was his number one fan. You know, and he was dealing with that at a time, <laughs> right. and that goes back to him. Uh, he does it often with his writer characters; is he uses that to tackle things that he's dealing with, especially when it comes to substance abuse. Uh, stuff you know because that, that was all jack and his drinking was was uh you know mm-hmm. was kind of a cornerstone in him dealing with that and that character in the shining and right you know and and uh, uh yeah and there's a, a writer one of the main characters is a writer in Tommyknockers right that's infamously you know a book he wrote well sure. so high on cocaine that he didn't remember writing it so um no, that's- yeah so <laughs> it's interesting that there's there's the cornerstone of that of that uh, college paper that's definitely
2: that's definitely there i mean both in the book and the movie like you know sheldon doesn't start fighting back or even mentally fighting back until he stops taking the pain pills right right um like for for even in the movie it's like a almost a shock like how long you know he's there in bed like somewhat believing that maybe you know he he knows something's off those are actually some of of khan's best moments i think as an actor Mm -hmm. is when they focus on him when she does something at the very beginning it's it's a little bit off and then it becomes becomes a little bit more off each time until finally like the first night almost like, and actually that's something they do in the film too. It's like her worst moments tend to happen at night, almost like she's a werewolf yeah. or something. Um, yeah. W- w- when she goes overboard. No, I mean, yeah, it was fun we're... to juxtaposition like, because you know, William Goldman is obviously a genius, like juxtapose right. like what he did with the screenplay compared to the book. Because the book's this big expansive thing in the screenplay and in the movie, it's like, it's almost like done in so many broad strokes, but at the same time, um, you know he leaves room you know, for the actors to do their thing you know and to build it that way. But you can almost feel like how quickly it's like, right, we gotta do this next. I mean in some ways like if you are if I were just to describe the screenplay, I feel like it would be like, oh, here's the cliff notes of the book. But when you watch it, it's not. it's so much more. Right. Um, you know as someone like I know very little about screenwriting and I'm trying to learn a little bit about it. I mean just watching that and play and reading some of the other Goldman stuff is really i don't know uh the guy knew what he was doing
1: <laughs> uh, no he's an all-timer his books are his books on screenwriting are incredible too if you haven't read mm. read
0: those no one thing that i remember Bush when I, he wrote right. marathon he man all the president's wrote, men wrote, wrote
1: harper yeah the princess bride harper.
0: twins uh he was an uncredited <clears throat> dream writer catcher on that one <laughs> yeah like yeah that's kind of what yeah. i was building up to like, oh really oh, I, I, like, I stepped on your joke i'm sorry no it's yeah it's it's fine <laughs> that's you know one of several king adaptations that he did because he also did mm-hmm. dolores claiborne but uh um, yeah, which is really good too i'm i'm curious what you think paul of the guy that wrote all those movies plus misery plus dolores claiborne and then delivering Dreamcatcher.
2: <laughs> yeah i don't know like yeah so First, I have to say this. I've only read the novel of Dreamcatcher, so I... Oh, you
0: haven't seen the movie?
2: It was enough for me. I didn't watch the movie. Um, (laughs) So I I will say this. One of the best writing lessons I ever got. And you're
0: probably not.
2: Yeah. So, and this will apply, I guess, to to Goldman or anybody. Like, I sent an email to a friend of mine who's like a mentor, Stuart Ornan, who actually co-wrote a Red Sox book with Stephen King. You know, Stuart's Mm -hmm. an amazing writer and super friendly guy. Mm Mm-hmm. And this was after I wrote a head full of ghosts. I, you know, I was writing disappearance of Devil's Rock. The next book, I was like, oh, you know, Stuart, this is really hard. Like, you know, it's not coming as easy as the last book, and me just basically whining, like looking for a pat in the back, a pat, you know. And he just sent me a one line email back that, and he wrote, "Eh, not everything you write is going to be great." <laughs> and I and I laughed out loud, but that was exactly what I needed to hear. Like, and it freed me up to write the book and just you know do the best job I could with that story. So yeah, I mean. Well answered. Not not everything <laughs> You're right, It's right is going to be great.
0: Man, can't always be
1: home runs. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm just going to have to assume that that uh, uh, William Goldman just isn't a miracle worker, and that <laughs> that source material. Uh, and again, in King's own words, we've said it before. But he, you know, he when asked about Dreamcatcher, he says, "Yep, that's a shitty book." Like he he's not he doesn't like it either. So yeah. so uh, I, so it's yeah. not 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 a dig on King, uh, but that that book is so all over the place and you know, but it's still Stephen King. Like I got to say, like you read it and it's kind of a chore to get through, but every once in a while you get those flashes of just brilliant character work or really fun scenarios. And and it's just, you know, I mean that, that dude couldn't write a completely worthless, you know, book if he tried.
0: Right.
2: No, absolutely. And I think that's one of the joys of like, if you find a writer that you really like and you read all their stuff, you're not going to love everything, but there's still certainly, as you said, value in reading The quote unquote lesser works, because you can still sort of see, you know, the seeds of them in there. And maybe, you know, based on what you've read prior, you can probably extrapolate. Oh, you know, this is what they were trying to do. And, you know, why did this work in in another book and not so much in this one? I don't know. I I love that kind of stuff.
0: So what do you think of Annie Wilkes as uh, a villain?
2: So my first experience with with Misery and Annie Wilkes was Kathy Bates. So like even when reading the book was hard not to imagine Kathy Bates (laughs) as Annie Wilkes because she so embodied it. You know, she's a lot meaner and maybe this might seem weird to say, it feels a lot more dangerous in the book. Mm. There are times where you like wonder if she's not a part of Paul's imagination and some sort of aspect, mm-hmm. because for sure. so much to the book, he, he is in a sort of, you know, pre-opioid, opioid haze. Right. Right. In, in terms of him describing like the pain that he's in and, you know, and how outlandishly she sort of brutalizes him, you know, and even like the sheriff too, like obviously in the book, you know, there's, The sheriff who shows up, you know, gets the wooden stake in the chest and then run over with a lawnmower. But, you know, in a lot of ways that sort of mirrored like what he was sort of worried about with his misery character. To him, to to Paul Sheldon, the misery character was becoming just more outrageous and less tethered from reality. And as you sort of go, you know, through the book, right, what I think is one of the genius parts of the book is that the story, you know, like if you were to just describe it as someone like, this can't really happen, can it? it? It becomes less tethered from reality, but at the same time, like you're so rooted. No, this is real. This is what's happening. I don't know. So I, I found that to be fascinating when I was uh, reading the book. No, she's absolutely you know terrifying, and and the way the book ends too. Like even though you know she sort of almost has like a slasher escape where she's not in the house, right? And they find her in the where they find her in the barn afterwards, right? But like he right. doesn't actually see her in there. So like you know you get more of the sense that Paul obviously in the movie like he's going to be have PTSD and he's thinking about whether she returns or not, but it feels more real that she could return, you know, for all the things that she yeah. means that we talked about, right. Could it, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, drug addiction or just him wrestling with, you know, writing problems, etc. You know, she's right. there.
0: <laughs> Do you find the character scarier now that you are a popular novelist, it, which is kind of a sideways way of asking, have you had any unpleasant or weird experiences with super fans?
2: Um, I'd say maybe a few weird ones. I mean, never nothing super unpleasant. I don't know, like no one's at King's level for one thing. So, like the, his level sure. of fame as a writer, you know, no one's ever going to approach that. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I very much would describe myself as being micro-famous, you know, wh- whatever that means. Uh, because there's, you know, the vast majority of people have no idea what I write or what I do, which is fine.
1: So you haven't had any number one fan, like super make you nervous encounters you, but you've, you've just had, you know, some awkward people. That's what it sounds like you are saying.
2: Yeah. D- I mean, definitely nothing, obviously nothing that rises to any wilkes not even close. <laughs> like, you know, even in person, you know, by and large, most everyone's been super nice. You know, I, I think most of the writer sort of interactions we have now is online. I mean, I, I would probably, that's probably the case for any people in the entertainment industry in general is that you're obviously going to talk to more people on Twitter or Instagram or stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, actually the only, the weirdest ones I got were actually for a head full of ghosts. Cause I would mm-hmm. get like a few messages randomly where I couldn't tell if they were being jokey or like, you know, I had one person say, Oh, this happened to my cousin, you know, and play it really straight. Like, and it was really creepy actually reading it to the point. It's like, Oh man, if I ever were to do like a <laughs> a sequel, I kind of have to use this. <laughs> yeah, um, for real. Yeah, you know, But I feel bad. I hope, you know, I hope it wasn't a real thing I, to the point where I ended the message like, geez, well, I hope you're, your cousin seeks, you know, professional help and some, you know, my best to your family. So there were a few, like that book has gotten me sort of some of the, I guess, weird, uncomfortable responses to that. You know, otherwise, you know, my, you know, it's, if it's a problem, which is debatable given, you know, the real, you know, the giant problems in the world is, you know, the thing I have to deal with that I have a hard time with just because it's who I am is like when people like tag you in negative reviews. I mean, those are the things that I, that I find much more annoying than, you know, it's people such a actually dick read move. the book and are excited to talk about it. You know, that's
1: it's such a dick move, you know, and I can tell you yeah. it's a dick move as somebody who you know for twenty years was a film critic. Mm-hmm. And I, if you know, when social media came about, like I'm like, listen, dude, if I wanted to tag somebody in a you know a negative review or even a positive review for that matter, if I wanted to tag somebody, I would tag him. You know, if, especially if I'm writing, you know, something negative that like right. I didn't like a movie. Like the biggest dick thing you could do for everybody involved is to like at kevin smith or you know at whoever the hell i'm you know i'm talking about it's like i'm have some social media etiquette
2: yeah no i mean it's just part i mean part of the compact for the writer and you know obviously the filmmaker too is like we don't respond to reviews so the other part of that compact should be don't you know tag us in your negative reviews right i mean that that should be the other half of it and and by large
0: is is that like how (laughs) the fuck would you work up the nerve to like write up a negative review of somebody's, like, movie or book and then tag them. And, well, hey, we just reviewed Paul Tremblay's, yeah. like, you know, Cabin at the End of the World, and it sucked ass at Paul Tremblay.
2: <laughs> well, then, like, like the, 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 first, yeah, the first response is, like, oh, well, you should be able to deal with negative feedback. Well, is the difference between, like, you know, taking criticism from your editor or something, you know, or, like, someone that you yes. asked to read the book, then like, just someone – I don't know. I think it's just part of the – it's just part of sort of the cultural – uh, meanness, you know, uh, M-E-N-E-S-S of, you know, what it is to be on social media, right? That, you know, my right. opinion, you know, my opinion must be heard and it must be heard by the creator, which is, again, yeah. that's a leap I would never make. Not to say like, you know, I, I you know, if I have something really nice to say, I, I'll, I'll tag people because, you know, everyone, right. no one's above sort of that ego stroke. <laughs> yeah. But yeah like I would never it. tag someone like, oh, I don't think this works and this is why. And like, but and you must know my opinion because it's worth that much. And
1: <laughs> that's tying into what we're talking about here, because Annie right. Wilkes is exactly, literally, exactly that. You know, she when she has the, the her favorite author at her disposal, she like turns into you know Kim Jong Un or who was it, Kim, Kim, Kim Jong Il, one of the Kim Jong-uns that or. like kid, kidnapped uh, you know filmmakers and shit and just made them make big monster movies and shit for him. You know, it's like she became a tyrant and you know i i think we we might have brought this up on the last show so I, maybe i don't want to dwell on it but you know it is so crazy to revisit that book and revisit that movie now mm. and just see how that's what fandom is you know 30 plus years later um for sure and he saw it uniquely in a way that like i never registered fandom as that like cuz when i was a kid you know in that era fandom was happy right it's like you could you know be a star wars fan and like Say you don't like Ewoks, but it was still the family. You were still in right. the family, talking about your mutual love of something, and now it's just all fandoms are just turning so toxic and fighting, and you know with each other, and, and the whole sex being so demanding of of you know authorship of the stuff that they didn't have authorship on. And you know the first time I can actually register that you know and being executed in any kind of way is is uh, Annie Wilkes.
2: Yeah, no, that's an excellent point that actually, you know, sort of passed over me a little bit, but um, no, that's all totally there, you know, in terms of, you know, obviously that's all rolled in as Sheldon's, both in the book and the movie, uh, his fears, right? He doesn't want this character, this series of books to define him. He doesn't want it Mm. to, you know, confine him, et cetera. Yeah, no, again, visionary king. (laughs) Sorry what was going to (laughs) happen on the internet before it happened.
0: I don't know. I I, I think I kind of disagree with you a little bit, Eric. My my theory is fandom has always been like this, but social media has accelerated the ability to, you know, have a platform and reach out to people directly, right? You know, it, we can go back to the 80s and 90s and say, like, it wasn't like that then, but that was within your circle of friends. You weren't aware mm-hmm. of all the fucking lunatics out in the world. You know, that, that wasn't a service you signed up for and then willingly checked in on every day. I mean, think about the the letter campaigns they wrote to Warner Brothers when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman. I think this sort of shit's always been going on. It's just that in the era we're living in, it's it's been brought more to the forefront and it's revealed that we live in a, a country of Annie Wilkes's.
2: <laughs> right. That's a fair point. Uh, to well, cut any I, some slack, I would say it, it just occurs to me, although she does have like one sort of. Yeah, King gives her this moment and it's in the movie too, because it's brilliant. If you know, he gives her a moment of where she is, wow, that's like some really good editing advice when she gives Sheldon the example of seeing the rocket man movie, the serial. Mm-hmm. Right. And how like one week like you see the car go over the cliff, you see him in the car. She's so excited to find out how, you know, he escapes, you know, in the next week, you know, the lazy hacks, just are like, Oh no, he actually got out. Mm-hmm. Even though they saw it the week before most people bought it. Um, You know, in a weird way, she helps him write a much better, (laughs) much better book. Um, You know, that's really the only time that that sort of happens. You know, the rest of the time she's into the romance and the schmaltz of the story. So, I mean, that's sort of interesting how King sort of, you know, put that in there. And I'm like, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I guess that humanizes her in some way or shows that, you know, she, she, you know, she shows she's intelligent, you know, throughout the story in, in a bunch of different ways. But that's sort of an interesting thing because, you know, the bulk of it is the fear of this fan, the fear of being confined but maybe it's, you know, the fear that maybe the fan is right too when you're mm-hmm. on. I don't know.
1: That's definitely in there. I mean, I think if, if Annie was supposed to represent fandom a hundred percent, you know, which she doesn't, she represents mm-hmm. addiction. Um, you know, then, right. then maybe I'd, I'd bristle a little bit at, uh, you know, at that moment, you know, because I really hate giving any credit to that kind of toxic fandom, even though they right. could be, you know, right every once in a while, uh, but yeah, I don't think that that undercuts his message. I don't think that's what his ultimate message was, but right. you know, King also loves playing in that gray area. He sure. loves it when his, his, uh, his bad guys, you know, have good things to say. And he loves it when his good guys say bad things. So, I mean, that's <laughs> you know, one of the reasons you love
2: reading King stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's actually even an echo of that in the movie that's occurring to me now at the very end scene with his agent played by Lauren Bacall, mm-hmm. you know, he says, you know, in a weird way, she taught me, I forget what the exact phrase is, but he sort of says, you know, Essentially, she taught me something that's left open to what that is.
1: And you can interpret that as him just taking a positive thing from his traumatic experience sure. and not ignoring what came before, but like using it as a as a growing thing for himself. You know, you, you could you could read read that in in many ways. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I it's definitely right. And you're Annie in that moment is exactly right. You know, she's seeing him cheat and because his heart's not into it, you right. know, it's not something he wants to do. But one thing that I really love Uh, You get a hint of it in the movie, but it's like really underlined in the book is how Paul, even though he's so done with misery, when he, he like gets, he catches fire when he's writing, like he gets an idea and he, and it inspires him and he gets caught up in it, you know? So even though he's doing something he hates, he's doing something he hates while doing something he loves. And it's like in a weird way, reinvigorating his love for the thing that he was trying to kill off. right? Right. And and that is such a fascinating complexity, you know, for for that character.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when, when you guys asked, like in particular, if Annie, if I, as a writer in my position, have felt, you know, anything about Annie. In my my short answer, I mean, I gave a long answer, but I would say mainly no. But <laughs> but what I felt as a writer now, experiencing the story, especially when I was reading the book, was when King was talking about, you know, he was str- you know, obviously struggled, he's been tortured, etc., cetera. But like when he finally gets into misery story, he talks about the page opening up and him losing himself in it. I mean that was something you know, I, I recognized, but also made me a little uneasy just because of you know how that character had gotten to the point where the page had opened up. Um, <laughs> to me, I yeah. mean just that whole thing really I don't know, spoke to me and got to me a little bit as a writer.
0: I would like to walk you through the list of people that almost played um, Paul <laughs> Sheldon in this movie. Oh. Uh, and have you tell me which of these people? You would have liked to see on the role, if not James mm. Kahn, who goes without saying did a tremendous job and we're Absolutely. glad he did it. But just for funsies, um, here are the names. William Hurt, mm. Kevin Kline, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfus, Gene Hackman, and Robert Redford all of those dudes turned down this part before they got to huh. James Khan. Does any, do any of those names like, like leap out at you is like, fuck, I'd like to see that version of the
2: movie. Um, a few, a few, definitely not. What the heck did I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dreyfus would just be such a different movie. That'd be kind of hilarious, yeah. but I mean, I, I it would I'd probably not be a good movie. The, the, two that I would be interested in maybe would be hurt or especially Gene Hackman. Um, yeah. You know, especially, like, because, you know, what I think what Khan does, like, just even with facial expressions, you get the sense, and, you know, this isn't talked about much in the book, uh, in the movie, but, you know, having read the book and then rewatched the movie, you know, the idea that he was from New York City and, you know, had a tough upbringing and lived, you know, was poor, et cetera, and you sort of get a little bit of sort of a grew up in the city kind of vibe from him. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, which you're not going to get, I don't think, from some of those other actors. Um, but I think, you know, Hackman definitely though, like, I don't know, he doesn't have to be Popeye Boyle from, uh, it's Boyle, right. From uh French Doyle, connection, but close. Doyle. Yeah. 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 Doyle. Ah, um, I was off by a letter. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I think Hackman would be at the top. I think, you know, he, he probably would have been able to do it, but no, I agree. I think Khan was, was perfect for it. Kevin uh, Klein
0: yeah. seems like a fucking wild choice. That does
2: seem like a wild choice. This, this
0: would have <laughs> been like post a fish called Wanda. Right. I'm just having trouble even picturing him in that. And I I think I said this on the Elijah episode, but I I would really, really like to see the Harrison Ford version of this. Mm. Yeah,
1: this era, Harrison Ford, for sure. Temple of Doom era, or not Temple of Doom, Last Crusade era, Harrison Ford. Yeah, totally. Totally. Kind of the Jack Ryan Harrison Ford. Yeah. I mean,
2: so would they end up like, you know, I don't know. Like, one thing I did notice, like, I didn't really get any hints of not sexual tension, but like the love part of things in the book. Whereas in Mm. the movie, I mean, they definitely do some subtle, almost like jokey parts of it. Like it's, it yeah. feels a little bit of like, you know, humor that, you know, that she might like, you know, that she loves him in a certain way. And even like the hobbling scene, <laughs> if you cut out the hobbling part and just show their expressions of her in, in mm. Khan without, without the knowledge that something happened, it, it almost is like, this is a sex scene. And, you know, he just came, you know, like, you know, she's like oh, God, I love you. Like, but watching him, like he looked like without the pain part of it, I don't know, that, that just struck me. It's something I'd never seen before. And I think it's huh. there. Um, unless I'm just totally bizarre. and right. weird, Which is well, also they possible have that,
1: too. <laughs> yeah. They have that date scene the candle, as well. Like, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Nah. I, I think that was like a playful, like, oh, we're going to do that. <laughs>
1: well, for but, sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, he, I, there's zero read uh, in Khan's performance of, of him fe- having any feelings for oh, Annie, yeah, yeah. despite no, hatred and, and loathing. <laughs> yeah. I love that scene. That scene is one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. And I love that they spend, Twenty minutes, like slowly building up to his plan, like pieces of his plan. Yeah, yeah, he has yeah. to escape to get the pills. That's a whole ordeal. He has to hide the pills. That's a whole ordeal. Right. She almost finds it. You know all this stuff, and he finally gets to this moment, and he and it, the, everything was going to plan. He would have worked, and she just accidentally knocks over the cup with all the drugs in it.
0: It's so fucking and, good. and
1: just the look on his face there. Talk no, about like the understated performance. But that is one of my all-time favorite any movie anytime, just the way he plays that is so perfect. It's absolutely. it's it's not too underplayed, it's not too overplayed, but just the way he kind of has this thousand yard stare as he watches all of that work go away and watches any hope he has of getting getting out going away is <laughs> no, absolutely. so brilliant.
2: And uh yeah with the book sort of ringing in my head because in the book she sort of she knows she figures out there's something in the line. Yeah. Um you know there's now I was looking to see if there was a hint of that in the movie and there really isn't. No, I agree. It, it's a great scene.
0: Here's something I was wondering about today while I was, you know, just kind of refreshing my memory about the book versus the movie. You know, the the thing about, in the book, uh, Paul get, gets his, his foot cut off mm-hmm. and right. then blowtorch shut. Uh, in the movie, it's a sledgehammer, she breaks his ankles. Um, and I was trying to decide which I would prefer. <laughs> I know the answer seems obvious cause you're like, well, I don't want to lose the foot, but also like if, if you're laying in a little bed like that with a fucking with shattered ankles, like right. I, I almost feel like just having the one leg with the missing foot and boom, it's done. It's cauterized. I mean, right. that's going to suck in its own way, but like, wouldn't the recovery be ultimately more painful with the, the shattered ankles like, am I crazy? Like, what do y'all think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're crazy. Yes. I mean, I think there's definitely an element, a truth to that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But, you know, obviously the idea of losing like a foot, <laughs> you know, in that manner w- would not be pleasant.
1: I think you're right. As somebody who has dealt with foot pain, you know, I've talked on the show before, you know, I have gout and, and uh, you know, I've had my, you know, an, a swollen ankle before that, it's it, yeah. It's essentially very you know uh, kind of arthritis and in, in, uh, foot mm-hmm. joints, and and I've had a you know a flare up in in my ankle and like I, I think I even mentioned on you know when I brought this up before was that like I actually had thing you know thoughts going through my mind of two days into that going if I cut my foot off this pain would go away right. And I, you know, I had that thought, and that's that's just with a, you know, arthritis ankle. Essentially, you know, imagine if everything's just shattered right, and right. just sitting there, and you know, just slowly mending itself, but not mending itself correctly because it's not. Even though she's a nurse, she's not professionally, you know, hospital style setting the bones right and and fixing all that Fuck stuff. You no. know, it's like
0: it's, you know the the recovery is like incidental to the act. So she's not going to be giving them the best care or right. making sure that, man, those fucking ankles could fuse back together, like all wonky and shit. You'd be crazy legs, like fucking Paul Sheldon walking <laughs> out of there.
1: Yeah. Oh, and it's probably going to be the, they play it a- afterwards. Like I didn't read like him using the cane and kind of hobbling his way, you know, to the, to the dinner with his, his agent. I didn't right. read that as like, Oh, he's still recovering. Like I read that as, Oh, that's how he walks now. I mean, that's right. just the, yeah. the damage that he taken.
0: And the book, he gets a prothe- uh, prosthesis. Right. You know, so he can still walk. Like, I don't want to lose a limb. I want to be very clear right. on that. I don't, I don't <laughs> think us want to lose yeah. a limb. But I do think there might be something kind of badass about having, like, you know, a bionic leg. Like I, I've seen <laughs> people having or, or like arms and shit. You know, you uh, the, those lo- Lieutenant Dan legs. It's it's it wouldn't be like wearing a wig to me where there's like a, an embarrassment factor to it. I would be like fucking check out my bionic leg. What do you know about right. this? You know, I think that would be kind of, I'm dancing on a razor's edge here because <laughs> I don't, I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to make this sound like, you know, um, people should be happy about it if they lost a right. the limb. Of course you shouldn't. I'm sure it's a very painful experience, but like if we're picking between these two things, Walking all weird for the rest of your life because some lady turned your fucking ankles into oatmeal, versus you know (laughs) having a bionic leg—that seems like an easy choice to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's where I mean the story veers into a little bit of of body horror because it does make you you know think about those questions, you know, especially in the book because you know you you live with Paul for so much longer and what he's going through, yeah, you know, including you know getting the thumb lopped off. The Um, thumb, the
0: thumb is maybe. In fact, I think it is worse than the foot. Like a thumb is that's very pertinent to everything you do with that hand, you know, and imagine how fucking painful that would be. (laughs) I I think I would rather lose the foot than the thumb.
2: Yeah, I'll keep both. (laughs) But
0: but if you had to lose one or the other by the means that are suggested in misery Uh. an axe to the foot until it's gone and, you know, they're not going to get that shit on the first fucking swing, dude. Right. Or the electric knife, cacao, taking out the thumb. What do you think? Oh,
2: I don't know. W- whatever's going to not last as <laughs> long.
0: <laughs> I think the thumb will go quicker.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll choose that then.
0: All right. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I'd like to
1: talk about in terms of the book version versus the movie is... Yeah, I was kind of like you. I, I know I, I watched the movie first before I read the book. And one of the things that I loved about going into the book after seeing the movie was getting to read what Paul was writing. Mm. Right. Because mm-hmm. there's these whole sections where you get to read it. And I love how they visually do it in the book where it's a different typeface. Uh, you know, the typewriter that she gives them doesn't have one of the keys. as E. I think it's right. one. N. Of, yeah. And that's right. Yeah. So it doesn't have one of the one of the things. And so he has to hand write those letters in uh and when he does. And they have it looks like handwriting ends for everything in that in the book. It is just so like immersive. And I remember even, uh you know, being a dumb kid reading that thing going, wow, this is really, really cool. You know, I didn't know that you could. You could change the way different things look in in books. I thought it all had to look the same, right, or the right. same font and the same size and everything. I don't know if there's a question in there, but uh, that's something that I I definitely appreciate in the in the book.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm a sucker for uh, I guess sort of postmodern techniques where you know you actually get to see the, these real artifacts that are that are fictionalized, <laughs> right, or presented yeah. in a way that they would be. No, absolutely. You know, and it's interesting. Like in the in the novel in particular, you know, she starts off filling in the ends, and then with her sort of depressive swings. You know, he has to do it. you know then she takes away a few more letters too. So it's like this ongoing thing. That's another op- yet another obstacle which seems small. but you know anyone who's tried to typing anything like if you're missing n I do think it becomes e eventually. It's like, oh my God, how is he actually going to finish writing this? <laughs> yeah. you know because you know that's sort of a, the you know the story itself and the story he's writing are sort of both working towards. You know, similar conclusions. So, no, I agree. Right. That was definitely a cool part of the book.
1: What I really love about Misery, like you said, the book is is very dark. Technically, it has a happy ending because the protagonist, you know, gets away. Um, but it, you know, he's traumatized through this this whole thing. Right. And I, I'm always going to be fascinated by this era of King because this is not only when you know he's on the cusp of of getting clean. Uh, he gets clean. I think around. I think Misery is his first book that he wrote clean uh, Mm -hmm. post Tommy knockers. Um, but it was also originally intended to be a Bachman book and would have been a Bachman book if, uh, he hadn't been found out with thinner. You look at, uh, misery and it does in many ways, it has still has some of the personality of his darker Bachman writing. Uh, that said, you know, it's not like Stephen King was afraid to put his name on pet cemetery, you know, around this Mm -hmm. time, which was the, you know, the darkest fucking thing ever. Um, and it, it definitely reads more to me like a, a straight up Stephen King thing. This would have given away the game if he hadn't been figured out by, by then or if he'd put this out because it's <laughs> right. it's so, like we mentioned all the tropes and everything, but it's so everything King is is in this, this story. I'll always be interested in, in in this book, especially coming at this time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's interesting. I didn't know that it was thought of maybe writing as a Bachman book, uh, yeah. but that's pretty cool. That makes sense. No, I agree. and you know, I think the ending, like, you know, he sort of nails it, like the idea that, you know, it, you mentioned the happiest ending, and, you know, and I'm not opposed to happiest endings as long as the characters sort of reflect, you know, the traumas right. that they went through. I mean, part of the reason why I wrote A Head Full of Ghosts, you know, for as brilliant as the movie and the book The Exorcist is, like, the ending always sort of, you know, as I was old, when I got older, it drove me crazy. Like, the idea that, oh, Reagan's fine, like, she doesn't remember anything. Mm. Like, in the film, it's like sunny out, you know, she hugs and thanks a priest, you know, everyone's right. happy. It's like, no, these people would be fundamentally fucked up if they went through this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you definitely, you definitely get that sense from Paul Sheldon. I mean, he's right. both like physically, you know, he's literally been, you know, scarred and changed by the experience, but also you yeah. can tell, you know, obviously just seeing her reappearance in the book and in the movie, you know, he's not going to be the same as well.
1: Right. Have you ever seen the exorcist TV show? Did you watch
2: that when it was on Fox? I did not. Uh, I heard it was really good. And it part is good, of it was just and- me being petulant because I, <laughs> you know, I would Someone says, oh, they start off with two sisters like you book. I'm like, what? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, they went a wildly different direction. So that's fine.
1: Right. You get you get uh, some of what you were talking about there. I, I will mm-hmm. say no more. But if you ever yeah. do decide to revisit it, it's only two seasons because they canceled it. But it's, uh, it's very good. And, and it kind of delves into some of what you're talking about. Nice. Yeah. So do you know what the original ending? By the way, this is one of my favorite tidbits. But do you know what the original ending for Misery was? Like King's First Thought?
2: No,
1: no. And this is this definitely fits more in the Bachman territory.
0: Yeah. Uh Yes.
1: Right now, this is a happiest ending—the one we got. <laughs> uh, the The other ending, not so much. The other ending: uh, Annie Wilkes kills Paul and then binds the copy of uh, uh, *Misery's Return* in his flesh. <laughs> that that was that um, was what King's initial thought wow. for you know for the thing, which yeah. you know is a kind of rare for King. He doesn't usually you know think about his endings early but apparently that was one that like was kicking around his head while he was writing and and i think about that every once in a while i don't know why but like that is that is just one of the the very interesting creative decisions where it i don't think it fits the story as it's written now but like if he had written it under the bachman pseudonym i can't imagine just how much more fucked up and dark this this would have been oh
0: totally no question
2: (laughs) right i mean because you have to lead up toward what your ending is so yeah like i think off, in other ways too the book would have been different but yeah that's pretty wild I, I did not hear that about the original ending. I, i'm <laughs> yeah. glad we got the one we got i think <laughs> as much do, as do, that would have been kind of cool
1: is that the way you work do you do you work the way king does where he just sits down and what comes out comes out or or, or you are you a heavy outliner
2: um i'd say more times than i tend to outlines, and even when i have like story ideas uh I tend to have like a beginning in mind and an ending, you know, and for each right. book, it can be different. The ending can be a lot foggier from book to book. And for me, like the, the story part of it is figuring out how do I get from point A to the point Z. But even that, like, you know, the ways I get there sort of surprise me or can surprise me And the ending, you know, can it does change. Like course, I started yeah. off with a different ending for a cabinet in the, the world, but it changed like 50 or so pages and after Trump got elected, that ending changed in my head.
1: Too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was way more patriotic is what you're saying after that.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, this is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to tease whatever they are working on next or, you know, what's, you know, coming down the pike uh in the near future. Uh what can you tell us? What's going sure. on? Sure.
2: Let me I wanna I wanna throw one last thing out about the movie though, because I thought I was oh, sure. really oh, smart well. by finding it. <laughs> uh when rewatching the movie, like the the stuff with the sheriff, like all his point of view stuff struck me as really like pre Fargo, Fargo esque mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um yes yeah, it was was warm and funny and you know, typically you see, you know, the the small towners, you know, presented as pumpkins. And you know, he's really smart. Yeah. And, Oh, he's Um, great.
1: I love Buster and I love Richard Farnsworth. He is such a great actor. And uh, his
2: relationship with his wife in that film is presented really amazingly, you know, full uh, and realistic, I think. Um, Yeah, sure. It it sucks. Where they're playful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's not, they're
1: not like a a crotchety old couple. They're, you know, they're, you can see the teenagers that fell in love in their performances. Yeah.
2: Right. No, and I think his death, obviously, was in the King Book, but like, I felt like it was a couple of psycho sort of shout outs by either Goldman or Reiner or both, just like how mm-hmm. he shows shows up and gets shot. Like he's a sort of main character who doesn't really come close to fulfilling any of his activity sort of, you know, similar to like Janet Lee dying right off the bat, but also, you know, the one of the investigators that shows up and dies on those yeah. stairs There's a shot laid in misery. It might be when they're both laying on the floor. Actually, Paul and, and Wilkes where it pans up to the staircase. And to me, it looks just like, you know, it's it's decorated any style but the staircase mm-hmm. is like sort of the same setup as, as in psycho. So I know, I mean, that hmm, could just be interesting me seeing things, but I like it, I I've buy written, it. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. So, uh, first week of July, the, the trade paperback of survivor song will be coming out. Um, my publisher t- typically makes me do something extra for the paperback and I'm happy to do it, but I wrote like a, a 2000 word liner notes essay, which I'm really quite proud of. So I hope people, even if you just walk into the bookstore and if you've read the hardcover, Go read the paperback, like essay. It's only two thousand words, but it's about oh, right sort on. of how I came up with the book, but also like a little bit what we talked about, like dealing with you know COVID when the book was coming out too. Yeah, so there's that, and otherwise, yeah, hopefully a year from now, my next book will be out. Uh, I just turned it into my publisher fairly recently, waiting on the edits, and it's called the Paul Bearer's Club. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's, you don't pr-
1: it's, predict any more like uh, worldwide catastrophes. No, or no, no. <laughs> things in that one, do you? Okay. No, you just need to know what I need to prepare yeah. for is all.
2: No, it starts in the late '80s and finishes, you know, before COVID. And, and weirdly, I had the idea for this book before COVID had happened, so like I don't feel like it's a cop out because <laughs> I had started thinking about this book before everything had happened. Yeah. But yeah, I, I I'm. It's a fun, weird book. It's sort of presented as a, a faux memoir of a character who, when he was a high school, you know, self-described high school loser uh, as a way to try to get an extracurricular activity started what he called the Pallbearers Club, where he and other people would volunteer at a at a funeral home to to serve for either homeless or elderly who didn't have a lot of surviving relatives. So it's mm. kind of sweet, but I don't know. It's still also just kind of morbid as well. Oh, right um, and, and this character, who was essentially me, uh a strange woman joins the club who who is older than him. he's not sure quite sure how much older, and then she becomes sort of this maybe supernatural figure throughout the rest of his life. ooh,
0: you know two of your novels, Headful of Ghosts and Cabin at the End of the World were both option for right. movies team downey uh picked up Headful of Ghosts and yeah. film Nation picked up Cabin uh any updates on those? It's been some years.
2: Yeah, nothing official. I mean, with the head full of ghosts, I mean, they had uh, the last announcement was like just over a year ago. They had Scott Cooper on board to direct and Margaret Qualley to star as adult Mary. Oh, um,
0: I didn't hear that. That's it, great. Yeah.
2: And it would have filmed last summer if not for, you know, the world shutting down. So, right yeah, they're still they're still going at it. <laughs> so hopefully, you know, fingers crossed things work out the announce, slowly. Yeah, I can't announce anything publicly yet, but. Uh, hopefully an announcement comes soon, but for cabin, there's been a really amazing sort of attachment. So
0: yet another King pass yeah. exclusive confirmed here by <laughs> Paul Tremblay. Steven Spielberg is Steven directing Spielberg, in yeah. cabin at the end of the world. Co-written by sure. Stanley Kubrick's ghost. It's going to be, it's going to be amazing folks
1: in collaboration
2: with William yeah. Goldman's ghost. So <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Maybe one of those two will start filming by the end of the year. We'll see. Fingers crossed.
1: That'd be great. Can't wait to see them when they when they do happen, and uh, and thank you so much for for joining us. We had a, a lot of fun talking with you about this. Yeah, thank you. It was a blast. Many thanks to Paul Tremblay for coming on to talk a little bit about uh, Miss Annie Wilkes and Mister Paul Sheldon, and even a little bit of Buster talking. There, we got some some talk of good old Buster. We love that Buster.
0: Love Buster, and uh, love that Paul Tremblay. What a sweetheart that guy is. You know, he definitely had some.
1: Like uh, good old authorly <laughs> insights into the book that we may uh, not have hit on our own, which uh, I really do appreciate. It's nice that we have, uh, you know, a good horror author on the show to kind of help us uh, dissect uh, the master. Right.
0: Originally, it was going to be a different horror author, but we had to do a little switch ruski on. uh this right, episode yeah. and Next. So you're getting two horror authors this week and, and next week. Well, two spread across those two weeks, not two per week. Let's not get crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, we uh, if you follow us on our socials, we announced a gentleman by the name of uh, Stephen Graham Jones as doing The Outsider. And that is true. We do have an episode of Stephen Graham Jones doing The Outsider. Uh, but unfortunately, we kind of put it in the wrong date. And that was supposed to be next week. And so we announced it a little early. So as a result, you get to know who two of our guests and two of our episodes are. Uh, So, yes, next week we will have Stephen Graham Jones. He's the author of My Heart is a Chainsaw. The Only Good
0: Indians. Yes. The Only Good Um, Indians. Yeah. And winner of two Shirley Jackson Awards just a couple of weeks ago. Very proud of this guy. I'd say he's an up and coming horror author, but he's been around for a long time. He's published a shitload of stuff independently and through. Couple of different publishers. He's got um, a ton of short fiction available to read online. It would probably be wrong to call him an up and comer, but he yeah, is. he's definitely established.
1: And by the yeah. reaction that we had from the uh, the followers on our the Kingcast Twitter account uh, when we <laughs> yes. announced him too early, uh, everybody's really excited for this episode, and you should be. It's a really great episode, and it centers on a topic we've never touched on before, which is the outsider.
0: So, and wait till you hear his story about what he found under the stairs in his old house.
1: That's a great, great episode. We can't wait for you guys to hear it. Um, Mm -hmm. What's happening on our Patreon this Friday, Scott?
0: Oh, this is another thing that we didn't intend to happen. It's just kind of the way the timing worked out on all this. But you may have clocked over the last several weeks. We had two different episodes that got kind of thrown on David Lynch tangents because two of our guests, David Desmelchen and, um, Patrick Fishler have both worked with with David Lynch. And so I will talk about David Lynch or anything Lynch related, especially Twin Peaks at the drop of a hat. And we had somebody come to us. He's a, a freelance writer, big time listener of the show. His name is Max Restaino, But he came to us with a great pitch, sort of outlining his belief that there are a lot of connections between Twin Peaks, The Return and The Dark Tower. You know not intentional Easter eggs or anything like that but just thematically and um, narratively which uh, I was I was pretty fascinated by his pitch so we're bringing him on the show to talk about it he's gonna lay out his case for you on that uh, on the patreon this Friday if you're not already signed up for the patreon go to patreon.com backslash the kingcast this is the one where I'm gonna hopefully get all this Lynch business out of my system until we launch the Lynch cast <laughs> so I can I can stop going on these detours every other episode.
1: No, it's healthy. It's healthy. You got to let out the Lynch every once in a while, kind of like uh, how they would would leech people back in the day.
0: I don't think you could do a whole Lynch show. Certainly not in the way that we're doing this show.
1: Right, David Lynch could do a whole Lynch show, and it would
0: be the oh, yeah. best podcast that was ever made.
1: But he I don't announces know the don't weather either.
0: every morning, and it's fascinating somehow. <laughs> yeah, you know, he could do it. He can do whatever. That wants. could
1: be the opening bit of the lynch cast. Imagine that he announces the weather. On the yeah. podcast, and then he just does whatever David Lynch does, and Talks it would be the best. Whatever,
0: yeah, I would listen to that all day.
1: All right, so for Kingcast listeners, next Wednesday is Stephen Graham Jones with The Outsider, and this Friday on our Patreon, we will be discussing the parallels between Twin Peaks and The Dark Tower. Yes. All right, we'll see you guys
0: then. Adios, folks.
1: The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespy—that's me—and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel
2: Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.